0: Uh, I'll only say one thing to set up the story, and that is that when this story talks about him, it's talking about Jesus, when it says he went, it's Jesus, and his parents are Mary and Joseph. That can be confusing because we're jumping right in. So it's Mary, Joseph, and their son, Jesus. We're going to start in Luke 2 with verse 39. Here the words of the Lord. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, To their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year for the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. When the feast was ended, they were returning, and the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. But supposing him to be with the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and their acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem, searching for him. And after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them, and asking questions. And all who heard him were amazed And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. The words of the Lord. Well, through that unique story, the Spirit of God does what he so often does. He gives us a glimpse into the glories of Jesus Christ. And he calls everyone To Jesus. These are his growing up years. Uh, This is the only story in the Bible where Jesus is neither a baby nor an adult. The only story where he's a child, a preteen, an adolescent, uh, growing up like this. And we know that's important because the first and last verse of the story frame it that way. Verse 40 says that he was growing in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. And then verse 52 closes out the story with essentially the same thing. Growing in wisdom, growing in height, growing in favor with God and with man. Said a little differently each time, but basically the same thing. So we know it's important to Luke here that Jesus is growing up. And if you know your Bible well, and if you're into church and theology and Jesus and these kind of things, uh, that might cause a little tension for you. That may make you ask some questions like, wait a minute, Jesus grew in wisdom and he, and he grew in the favor of god upon him so so jesus was less wise and he got more wise he he had less of god's favor and then he got more of god's favor that doesn't doesn't seem right does it and and that hits on the tension of the whole story The tension of this story is that he is fully God and fully man, and that's causing all sorts of things to go on here. So uh, this is a very important teaching in the Bible about who Jesus is. And kids, when I was your age, I had a Sunday school teacher who just, blessed woman, who drilled it into my head, he is 100% God and 100% man. He's not 50-50 God and man. He's 100% God and 100% man. So he's fully God, he's fully man. And in this story, hes if it's hard to wrap your mind around that, he's fully God and fully a 12-year-old boy. That's really hard to wrap our minds around. Um, but if he's 100% man, what, what, what do people do? Well, people start out as a, a fetus in the womb, and then we're born, and then we grow, and we get bigger and bigger, and then we become an adult, and you know, that's how it goes. And the one, those of us who do this really well grow in wisdom along the way. And those of us who do it really, really well grow in wisdom quickly and their fathers become very delighted in them. Uh, some of you know what that's like to have kids or grandkids and, th- and they get not only bigger but wiser and you're like, whoa, i I didn't think I could be any more delighted in you, but, but I am, right? One, one minute, I know what this is like, and one minute I'm holding my son and I'm tickling him and having so much fun and thinking I couldn't possibly be more delighted than I am in this little boy. And then he's 10 years old and he learns how to mow the lawn and he just goes out and mows the lawn without being asked to. And I'm like, I didn't, I didn't think I could be any happier, but like he's growing in wisdom and it makes me so glad and, and delighted. And if you're a parent or a grandparent, you probably know that feeling as well. Well, Jesus did that age perfectly because he was the perfect man. He was a perfect 12-year-old boy. And so what did he do really well? He was growing in wisdom like a sponge because he wasn't just God. He was fully man as well and fully a 12-year-old boy. So, the point really in the way it's framed is that Jesus did 12 years old perfectly. He was, he was growing out of his sandals, and he was also growing in wisdom really quickly. And that, that age, those awkward years are the frame for this whole story. So, here's what happens. His parents, as we already know, are very devout people. Uh, we saw in the last story, they went to the temple to offer sacrifices, and we saw times before that they did very devout things. When there was something you needed to do in the law, they went and they did it. And so every year when there was a Passover, they'd make the journey to go to Jerusalem, celebrate the Passover, and then they'd make the journey back home. And so here we are, his 12th or so time doing this. Passover season comes around, and they go up to Jerusalem celebrate the Passover for several days, and then turn around and they go home. Uh, We see that in verse 41. Uh, But Jesus secretly stays behind. I guess he sneaks out and stays behind. He really is the perfect 12-year-old, right? And so his parents think that he's with the group. So in that day they traveled in big caravans together, kind of on foot, maybe there's some animals along the way to to help and so you know by then, we know Jesus had a number of brothers and sisters, so probably four, five, six, seven kids in the family by now if he's 12 years old. So they're all in a big group, and they're all running around with their friends and playing and having fun while they're along the road, taking their time to get back home. Night falls, and the first day's journey is done, and everybody gets back with their family. And behold, Jesus is not with his parents and his brothers and his sister. And some of you are parents and know what this is like. Oh, no, we have lost one along the way, and so his parents start to panic, right? They head back to Jerusalem, and they, uh, they look for him for three days. I've preached this story before, but I didn't have a 12-year-old then. This is different now, I, I can admit. Uh, they look for him for, for three whole days you guys would be in so much trouble, I just want to say. They look for him for three whole days, and then they find him. And when they find him, uh, he's, in, he's in the temple, of all places. Uh, and he's sitting there among the, the teachers who would be scribes and rabbis and people who knew their Old had multiple books of the Old Testament. memorized. Many of them had the first five books of the Bible memorized. And he's sitting with these sages, asking them questions and hearing answers. And in in this great dialogue that evidently has been going on for three days in the temple. He's been just quizzing them and schooling them so thirsty for knowledge. And all of the adults in the temple, all of the teachers are looking at him and they are amazed at how much he already knows at 12 years old. And how good his questions are. Their style of teaching just revolved around the students asking good questions. And here he is asking incredible questions. And everyone is amazed at this young prodigy. Who could this child be? He already knows more than the teachers know. He already knows so much about the Old Testament. And there he is just absorbing more and more and more and more knowledge and wisdom. And so their astonishment... And his, like, prodigy-like status as a student, that picture of, wow, look at him. That's our first glimpse into into who Jesus is. Uh, He was the sort of 12-year-old that you take him to church here, and he goes back to Sunday school, and you you pick him up after Sunday school, and you're like, how was Sunday school? And he's like, it was amazing. Well, what did you study? We studied the Bible and it was amazing right and then you do church and he's just gobbling up the sermon and singing all the songs and he's loving it and you go home and you're watching the AFC championship game tonight and you know commercial comes on and you're like hey son can you uh where'd he go honey do you know where he is no Uh uh-oh right? And so you're frantically looking at He's not in the house. You're, you're going, you're back in the car, driving all around. And finally, uh, after a long search, you make it back here to church, and you see through the glass doors, there he is sitting on the tan couches with Paul, with Mindy Donahoe, with David Tolls, with Faith, with Katie. Uh, and he's just quizzing them, like grilling them with awesome questions. And you're like, Wait, you snuck out to go back to church? Like this is the kind of 12-year-old he is. And then you walk in the door and Paul comes and he greets you and he says, Hey, I'm sorry we didn't tell you that, that your son was here. Uh, but more importantly, you need to know you, you are sitting on something special with this child. This child has so much wisdom. That's the kind of 12-year-old that Jesus was. Just unrivaled, un- unparalleled in his thirst for the Word of God and in his wisdom. There's a reason that's important for you. Uh, The reason that's important is because he's not 12 anymore. And he's not the student anymore. Now, in the house of God, he's the teacher. That child prodigy, that brilliant young person, is now on the throne of heaven, 2,000 years young, with hair as, as white as wool, and eyes like a flame of fire and the brilliance of the rainbow encircling his throne, a golden sash around his chest. And when he speaks in his wisdom, it is as loud and as rich as a waterfall blaring. And he is now the teacher in the house of God. So if you're a Christian, the one whose feet you sit at is that prodigy, that wise one, that brilliant one. Now you have the way to wisdom. Now you have the path to wisdom because the wisest one to ever walk the earth is your teacher. I bet you want a teacher, maybe right in this pulpit or maybe in Sunday school or maybe elsewhere in your life, you're looking around YouTube for good teaching videos, and I bet what you want is a teacher who can just blow your mind with wisdom. Like, wow. I did not know that. I didn't know that was in there. That's amazing. That's how you want to feel after good teaching. And the good news for every Christian is that the one whose feet you have come to, Jesus Christ himself, who with an open hand through his word teaches all of his own, that guy, that guy is your teacher. He's the one whose feet we're sitting at. So the first glimpse we get into Jesus then is that he is exceedingly wise. He was exceedingly wise as a student, and now he's exceedingly wise as the teacher in the house of God. Do we see then enough to give us confidence in what this word says to us and How much attention we ought to give to it every morning or night when we're opening it to read it. And every time it's read in our worship services and in your Sunday school classes and in your Bible studies, you are reading the words who come from that wise sage. The one who at 12 already had more knowledge than we do and already was ready to teach us. And now even in his humanity is 2,000 years old in his wisdom. That matters because I know for a lot of you, when you're reading your Bible, there's little parts of it that you get and big parts that you don't, right? You try to read through that thing in a year, and it's like, all right, I read four chapters today. I understood two verses of that, right? That's a common thing for us, and if that's how you feel, you're not alone. The point we can grab from here, though, is that that two verses that you did get, the nugget of gold that you did get is valuable, is highly valuable, worth clinging to, worth prizing because they come straight from the mouth of this one who at 12 was amazing, even his teachers. So when you're reading that Bible in the morning, have confidence in this word. When it is preached here in the pulpit, whether it's preached well or preached poorly, the words themselves in the text have such a high value and are worth everyone in the room prizing, cherishing, and taking so seriously. I hope it gives you confidence also, if Jesus is the wise sage and the best teacher that there ever was in history, and he's our teacher, I hope that gives you confidence in his ability to answer the big questions in life. That's important because the cultural currents of the world are always going to push against us in a way that makes us feel like our answers are not as good as their answers, but if our teacher is the one that was amazing to all of the scribes and the Pharisees, now our teacher has the better answers to the big questions of life. This is one of the things that drew me to following Jesus and drew me to the Bible. I was in college, and uh, I really wanted a lot of things to be true. I really wanted men and women to be the same thing. That was like the cry of my heart. Why are they different? I wanted to be the same thing, and I really wanted several other things to add up a certain way. I wanted people to be free to do whatever they wanted, but then I was looking around the world and seeing that the male students and the female students at college acted very differently. And that the friends I had that were doing whatever they wanted, that did not work out very well for them. And so the, the world itself was refuting what I wanted to be true. Like my answers to the big questions didn't square with what I was seeing. And on the other hand, I was reading the Bible and considering it and its answers to all those questions, I liked less, but they made more sense with what I was seeing and the Lord just show, slowly and patiently showed me, I have better answers for you than the world does. And he used those years to just solidify my commitment in the Bible by showing me that his answers are better than the answers that the world gives to us. And if you have big questions, it's much the same for you. We all have the big questions, right? Why, why do we have consciousness? And why am I alive? And it seems like I have a soul or something. What's going on there? Well, materialistic science-based ideology isn't going to answer that. It can't explain why it really does seem like you have a soul and why we're all conscious and making decisions. But the Bible can't explain that. Why is there evil and suffering in the world? That question plagues so many people. And the Bible has the very best answer because its words come from that child prodigy who's now 2,000 years old. Why are men and women different from each other? And what's going on? Why did God make two genders? What's going on there? The Bible has better answers for that than any system in the world and so on and so forth. The big questions you have, if we would sit at the feet of the wise teacher, he would give us The very best answers. So you got those questions. My advice for you, look to the word of God because it is coming forth from that wise sage himself. He is the word by which the world was made and even the word itself, inspiring these words through his spirit. And his answers are the better answers. Some of you, that matters really particularly because you've come to Christ either in middle or later years in life. Or you've been a Christian for a while, but you had a time of rebellion, and now you've come back and and you want to follow Jesus faithfully. But you're looking back and you know, okay, I made a big mistake here, and this was really wrong. I did some very foolish things. And I'm still reaping what I sowed in those foolish years. right? So you know, I made a mess of life for many years. Now my life is a mixture of mess and good. But I may have years ahead of me and I want to do these remaining years right. right? That's the place that many of you have been in or are in even right now. And the way you learn how to do life well for those remaining years is to sit at the feet of Jesus and let him teach you wisdom. The the Proverbs say, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And who is the Lord? Jesus Christ is the Lord. Holding a a reverence in your heart for this 12-year-old who amazed his teachers and who is now seated on the throne, taking his words even in the Proverbs and in the Psalms and cherishing them, hiding them in your heart. There are the answers you're looking for to do the remaining years of life well, even if you've made a mess of the years past. For His, his wisdom, it makes wise the simple, and He gives it to all who are willing to seek it. So, so look there. Look to this 12-year-old to teach you wisdom. This matters for a lot of us when uh, unbelievers ask us hard questions Uh, Some of you have honest people in your life who are asking honest questions, but the questions are hard, and you don't know the answer to their questions. And others of us are being asked questions by people who have more of a hostile intent. They're trying to trap us with their questions. We saw that happen in a a hockey game this week. Some of you know that story. This guy got all these questions thrusted on him about his faith. Uh, So some of us have honest questions that we don't know the answer to, Others of us have traps in the form of a question being sprung on us, and we don't know the answer. And when that happens, it feels like, okay, I don't know the answer, and it feels like there must not be an answer. It feels like they got me because I don't have an answer to this. But if our teacher is this wise sage who was once the child prodigy and is now seated on the throne— we can have confidence that there is an answer to that question. Now, we may never find it, but the confidence of knowing that there is one and that the Lord may give us the answer in the Scriptures gives us a little more security in that conversation. We don't feel like we're losing the battle, and we could just have the humility to say, you know, I don't know the answer to that, but I know the Lord is good, and He has an answer to that question. That means then that as we answer those difficult questions, uh, the beginning of the wisdom we need is the fear of the Lord. It's the fear of Jesus Christ. If we can maintain in the midst of all that pressure that comes on when you don't know the answer to what they're saying and we still walk in the ways of Jesus and say, I don't know the answer, but I do trust him. We can remember a Lord who walked the earth and had trap questions sprung on him by the Pharisees but never let anybody get away with it, right? Like how many times did they try to trap him with a question and he just turned it right around on them? Well, that same Lord is your teacher. And if he were there in the flesh speaking with that person who is grilling you, he could turn around every one of their questions. So the point here is, is that the fact that you may not know the answer to that question does not mean there isn't an answer. It doesn't mean that Jesus isn't, isn't strong enough and wise enough to, to win that debate and answer all those questions. So look to him, have confidence in him, even if you don't know the answer yourself. It also matters a lot that Jesus is this wise for those of you who, who are interested in coming to Jesus. I hope there are some in the crowd today uh, who know a little about Jesus, you came back again, or maybe it's your first time because you're thinking, I, I, I'm interested. He, he's a, I, I'm not ready yet, but I'm interested. And if that's you, I, I wonder if you're feeling like the answers the world is giving you don't add up. There's just so much contradiction in what we're taught By the world, whether you're sitting at the feet of the mainstream media, you found a little niche in social media that's teaching you whatever, any corner you turn, the answers you're getting there are contradictory and and nonsensical. And if you see that, if you have eyes for that, now you're looking at Jesus. And what I want to tell you about him is that he has answers that square with the world that makes sense of the world. Answers that are more satisfying than we're hearing from anywhere else. This is just one of the many glories by which he is calling you in, saying, I hold in my hand better answers. I have better things than that, he says. But I hold in my hand better answers. I wonder if that's compelling enough you, to you to pull you in and give you a love for him. So that's our first point then, that Jesus is exceedingly wise. He is worth sitting under. He is worth spending the rest of your life sitting at his feet. If he were 12 and he were still here right now, we would sit at his feet. And how much more now that he is who he is. All right, let's move on in the story. In verse 48, where we pick up, his parents have found him in this very state in the temple, quizzing the teachers, amazing everybody with his knowledge. And it says when they find him, they're they're astonished. They're like, what just amazed and and then uh, his mother in verse 49 comes to him and I mean, she gets points here too. This is the perfect mother of a 12-year-old as well. She says, son, why have you done this to us? We've been searching for you in distress for three days. I remember one time I rode my bike around the neighborhood and I didn't tell my parents that it didn't come home and they were wondering where I was and they searched for several hours and they finally found me in the neighborhood and it was the same thing. Why didn't you tell us where you were? We were so worried. We called the police because we didn't know where you were. And she was just, just fretting really at him. Why did you do this? to us and he looks to her and man if you're a kid here today this must be so much fun he looks to her and he says mom why were you looking for me didn't you know that I must be in my father's house like ultimate burn on his mom guys Ooh, and he gets away with it And, and it's Parents don't understand. It says in verse 50, they, they didn't understand the thing that he said. I told my kids, like, guys, in church tomorrow, you're going to hear a story about Jesus correcting his mom and getting away with it. He gets away with it, and They don't understand what it, what it is that he's saying to them. We're seeing there that at this point in his life, at 12, he has a better understanding of who he is than his own parents do. They had the angels and the prophecies and the revelation, and they had a pretty good understanding of who he was, but now we're seeing he gets it more deeply than they do. Mom, Dad, you guys are my parents, and I love you, but God is my Father, and, and you should have known that this is where I would be. This is where I belong, in the house of my Father. And so the point that he's telling us there, what he understands about himself and his parents don't fully understand, what we need to understand about him is that God is his father and he is God's son. That's why he refers to the temple as my father's house, because he's the son of God. That tells us many things about him that are filled out through the rest of the Bible and a teaching in the Bible we call the Trinity Trinity. Uh, and several other things as well that I can lay out for you. Uh, kids, you need to know that the Trinity is one of the most important and difficult to understand teachings in the whole Bible. Uh, and I'm going to walk you guys through it. And kids, I want you to pay attention. I want you to repeat back what I'm going to say to you, okay? So kids, look at me, eyes on me. You guys are going to get to repeat. Adults, you can help out too. Uh, but, but the teaching of the Trinity is that there are three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and there's one God. So three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God. Kids, grown ups, can y'all say that with me? Here we go. Three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one God. All right, so this is the teaching that our one God, there are three persons in that one God. There's the Father, there's the Son, there's the Spirit. All three of them are fully God. They're not like a third God. They're fully God. And somehow, there is only one God. Now, when Jesus says, I must be in my Father's house, this temple is my Father's house, he is saying that among those three people, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, he's saying, I am the Son. He's saying, I am God the Son, eternally begotten, the, the one and only begotten Son of the Father. Here I am in the flesh, he's saying. So that's one very important thing he's saying about himself, that he is very God, a very God, as the men of old used to say, the begotten Son of the Father. When it comes to the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, he is the Son, and so he is even God himself. That's one thing he means when he refers to God as his Father. There's a second very important thing that the Scripture means when it refers to the Son of God. We've talked about this psalm. It's a big point for the book of Luke. Uh, In many points in history, the Lord sets up a king to rule the earth or to rule much of the earth and calls that king his son. So, for a brief period, Adam is ruling the earth before he sins as God's delegate over the whole earth. And Adam is called the, the son of God in a genealogy in two different places, And then for a long time, David and David's son Solomon ruled not the whole earth, but much of it in a great and mighty kingdom, and they are called the Son of God. Whoever the king is at the time is called the Son of God. And the great hope that Israel had that the prophets cast to them is that one day the Son of God was going to come and rule as king forever, and he would bring justice He would bring prosperity. He would bring everything we are longing for in a president a thousand times over to the whole earth forever when this king comes. That's what the son of God is going to do when he comes. So the other thing then that Jesus is saying when he calls God his father and he says, I'm in my father's house when I'm in the temple, he's saying, I am that rightful king of all the world. So two important ways that Jesus is the son of God. He is the begotten son of God, very God from very God. And he is the rightful king and ruler over all of the world and even over all of the universe. That's big. I mean, that's, that's lofty. And it tells us something of just how incredible he is, what kind of a level he is at. What that means for us It's important because Jesus calls from us some very difficult and very important things. But if He is the begotten Son of God and the rightful King over all the earth, and He is as wise as we saw He is a moment ago, what we're seeing is He is worthy of the difficult things He is calling of you. He is worthy of the lofty claims of lordship He makes over our lives. Now that's big if you're considering coming to Him because there is... Always, some way in which he is calling you from what you used to be to deny it and look to him as Lord. And this is always very difficult for us, but for a person who was raised in Islam, but for a Muslim, he calls them to move then from there is no God but Allah and he has no son to Jesus Christ is the Son of God and my Lord. Imagine how big of a shift that is for someone their whole life who has been taught and had social pressure applied to them to say, There is no God but Allah and He has no son. But Jesus says, Even here, if He is the Son of God, He says, I'm worthy of calling that to you. And He reaches out to every Muslim who hears His word and He says, It is a big thing to turn from what you have been taught to me, but see, He says, I'm worthy the true Son of God, very God of very God, the true rightful King over all the earth, the true sage that we need to look to. When we turn from false teaching to Him, we're turning to something better. In the same way, someone who has been raised in kind of the mass media culture of the United States has been taught by everything from kindergarten classes to Disney movies that you gotta be true to your real self, right, there's a real self inside of you, and you need to let it out and not let anybody tell you that your true self is wrong. And that is really hard then to hear Jesus speak into that, deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. Like the very thing we've been taught to hold highest, like follow your heart, follow yourself, be true to yourself. And then the Lord of the universe comes in and says, no, deny yourself. It's just a whole paradigm shift. And if that's you, I want you to know I feel for you. It is a big deal to turn from that all the way to Jesus and make him Lord. But what you can see in this text is Jesus says, I am in my Father's house when I'm in the temple, is that he is worthy of making a claim like that over your life. If he's very God of very God, if he's the Son of God, if he's the true sage, if he's the true king, he can claim lordship over our whole lives He can claim lordship over ourselves and our identity. He can claim lordship over our lifestyles because he is worthy of it. And so here's my call to everyone. We must all turn from what we were or what we are and look to him as God, receiving his death and resurrection as payment for our sins and a guarantee of future life receiving wisdom from his tongue, receiving law for life from his word, receiving him as Lord and as Savior and as King and as so much more. My call to every last one of you is to receive Jesus for everything that he is because as you can see right there, he is worthy of it. So there's the second point. God is his father, he is his son. I told you earlier, we have two points about who he is and one about how he wants us to live. That's this last point. How does he want us to live? Well, we pick up the story. Uh, He has just delivered to his mom the ultimate burn. He just won the day, right? And his mother and father don't understand and they're happy. Uh, They go home next. Now, you might think, okay, in this whole story, Mary and Joseph are his parents, right? Luke switches from calling them Mary or Mary and Joseph to his parents. And so his parents go up to Jerusalem and his parents look for him and his parents find him in the temple. And then when Mary speaks, it's not Mary, it's his mother spoke to him. And so there's this emphasis on they are his earthly parents, all building up to him saying, didn't you know I'd be in my father's house? All right, so there's a, there's a point there. The Lord is more his father. God is more his father than Mary and Joseph are his parents. So you might expect the story to end with them saying, okay, I guess you're home now. We'll go home. You, guys, you don't need to follow us anymore. You can stay here and, you know, we did our part. It's over with. But that's not what happens. Instead, it says in that last verse there, he goes back home with them And he's submissive to them. He follows them. And even that Mary treasures up all of these things in her heart. I don't know if, I mean, Luke did the investigation in these things. And I don't know if he just sat with Mary as an old woman and said, tell me the story. And just heard so much delight in her heart over it that he says she treasured it up. But one reason or another, Mary is not frustrated at her son. She is delighted in her son. He comes back. He follows them. He submits to them. So, we're seeing there a tension that comes at that age, when you're 11, 12, 13. You're starting to figure out that your parents don't know everything, and that's difficult, and that's difficult for your parents also. Uh, And you're starting to sense, if you're a believer, a closer connection to God than even you have to your parents. You're becoming your own person. And so there's a sense in which my mom and dad love me and they're my parents, but, but God loves me even more. And that becomes real to you at that age and creates a certain amount of tension in anybody. That's the tension we're seeing here with Jesus. Mary and Joseph are his parents, and God is his father at the same time. Well, kids, if you feel like your parents don't get you at that age, uh, You need to know that Jesus' parents didn't understand him either. We see that in verse 50, right? They didn't understand the saying that he said to them about his identity. But he did go home with them, and he did continue to submit to them and follow them as his parents. And so we see there how he is calling us to live. On one hand, honor your mother and father. On the other hand, be even more loyal to God. Or if we were to say it in the inverse, God is your most important allegiance, but you still have to honor your mother and your father. We see that in the way he handles that tension there. This teaching is there throughout all of the scriptures. It may be most pointed in the Ten Commandments. Uh, it is so important to the Lord that we honor our parents that one of the Ten Commandments is honor your mother and your father. And that's not given to children, it's given to all of Israel. Honor your mother and your father. And then in the book of Ephesians, late in the book, Paul references that command and he applies it to children in the household. And he says something slightly different. He says, children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. And then he references that command that comes with a promise. And so we add these up and what we see is that there is a bit of a difference between honor and obedience. Honor is that respect that you give that shows somebody I respect you and shows other people around I respect this person. Obedience is doing what they tell you. So we add all this together, and we see when we're children, when we're in our parents' house, we both honor and obey our parents. And then you get out on your own, and you're not a child anymore, and so you don't obey your parents anymore, but we still honor our parents. That commandment was given to all of Israel. So the short version of that is that if you're an adult, the Lord calls you to honor your parents. If you're a child in your parents' house, the Lord calls you to honor and obey your parents. What that means then practically for us is that if your dad is an unbeliever, the way you share the gospel with your dad should look different than the way you share the gospel with other people. Your dad should hear the words that he is a sinner in need of salvation in such a nuanced way that he knows his child is not dishonoring or disrespecting him. Because there, there's a special relationship there, isn't it? So that's going to look a little different than it looks for anyone else. Now, your greatest allegiance is to your heavenly father, right? Just like Jesus was. So, you, so if your dad's not a believer, you've got to share the gospel with you. It doesn't mean don't share the gospel with him because you've got to honor him. You don't want to upset him. No, it means that when you do, it needs to look a little different than it does for anyone else. Kids, this means you got to do what your parents tell you. You heard it straight from the preacher. Sorry, guys. (laughs) And it means something more than that, too, because you guys are growing up, and you're bringing us a lot of delight when you do it. Uh, It means that there's going to come a day, and for some of you who are a little older, it's probably already come. Uh, There's going to come a day where hopefully you still cherish what we teach you, uh, but you'll move from going to church and reading your bible and doing all the churchy things because mom and dad brought you to doing it for yourself because you've developed a love and allegiance for jesus yourself and so there might come a day and i actually hope there does come a day for you where you say you know at the end of the day i I love dad and i love what he's taught me about jesus But at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what dad says about Jesus because I love Jesus. And that's what we want for you. We want the day to come where you love Jesus more than you love us, in the same way that Jesus showed more loyalty and affection to his heavenly father, even than he did to his earthly mother and father. Let me tell you a story that I think illustrates that in my own life. Uh, I was raised in the United Methodist Church. Uh, Which means that when I was a baby, uh, I got sprinkled and they called it baptism, right? I'll be generous and say they baptized me as a baby, but we all know that's not real baptism, right? Okay. Um, So they sprinkled me as a child and uh, that kind of counted. And then when I was 12 or so, I came to Christ and they said, great. You came to Christ, and it didn't baptize me then when I came to Christ. And so I grew up, and they taught me a lot. They taught me to love Jesus and love my Bible. They drilled that into me, some basic theology. They drilled into me, great stuff. I start studying my Bible, and lo and behold, I, I hear the Bible telling me that we get baptized when we come to Christ, and that sprinkling isn't baptism, but being immersed in water is, is baptism. And so when I was uh, late in my college years, I went home, and I told my parents I sat him down at the dinner table and I thought that they were just going to be so mad. I said, um, You know, I've been convinced by the Bible that I need to be baptized by immersion um, and found a really respectful way to say basically what you guys did to me didn't count um, and I need to go do that myself. Um, and I thought, like, I was so scared. I thought, like, Oh goodness, how is this going to go? And my mom cried um, and she said, I'm so happy. <laughs> and I said, Mom, why are you happy? <laughs> And she said, uh, she said, I've been praying for the day that your faith would become your own and that you wouldn't follow Jesus because we follow Jesus, but because you love Jesus. And if you're willing to come home and tell us that we baptized you wrong and you want to do it right, you must love Jesus for yourself. So they saw that day a, a loyalty in my heart that was greater to God even than it was to them. And I thought they'd be so upset, but they were so happy. And kids, we want you to know that that's what we want for you too. We want the day to come where you still love us, but where your love for Jesus and your loyalty to Him is even greater than it is to us. We're so thankful y'all were here for this. It's just a kindness of God that He's here for, had you guys here for this text. Uh, Let's spend a few moments in prayer, and we're going to ask that God to work really powerfully in our lives through this.